In this episode, writers Melanie Florence, Joanne Vanicola, and moderator Deborah Dundas discuss that honest and vulnerable storytelling are powerful means for readers to connect, learn, and facilitate change. This book is Just Lucky. She is an award-winning writer of Korean Scottish heritage based in Toronto. She was close to her grandfather as a child, a relationship that sparked her interest in writing about Aboriginal themes and characters, which feature very strongly in Just Lucky. She's the author of Missing the Mama, which won the 2016 TD Children's Literature Award, the 2017 Forest of Reading Golden Oak Award, and was a finalist for the 2017 First Nation Communities Read Award. Her most recent picture book, Stolen Words, won the Ruth and Sylvia Schwartz Children's Book Award, is shortlisted for the Marilyn Bailey Picture Book Award, and was given a starred review, hard to come by, by Kirkus, who listed it as one of the best picture books of 2017 to give readers strength. Please welcome Melanie Florence. I'm going to start at the beginning because I feel like that's a pretty logical place to start. What you might be interested in knowing is that it's sort of inspired by my own grandmother, so that may or may not come up later. But I'm going to read you the first couple of chapters just because it introduces you to the characters of Lucky and her grandparents. My mother named me Lucky. I swear, it's on my birth certificate and everything. My grandma used to tell me that my mom would go to the casino when she was pregnant and rub her belly for luck. Apparently, she won a jackpot and decided then and there that I was her good luck charm at least until I was born, and she discovered she couldn't bring a newborn to the casino for hours at a time, or forget about her entirely and leave her beside a slot machine while she smoked crack in the parking lot. That fool girl, as grandma called her, got herself arrested, and I was left with grandparents who were long done with their own parenting, but took over the care and feeding of another kid without a second thought. So for the past 15 years, it had just been the three of us, grandma, grandpa, and me, Lucky Robinson. I've only even seen my mother a handful of times since she gave me up. She calls every couple of years or so when she's desperate for money, but it's been ages since I saw her last. I'm not even sure I could pick her out of a police lineup at this point. To be honest, I secretly believe that I'll have to do that someday. I watched the cursor flashing on the screen and then deleted everything I had just written. I was pretty sure Mr. Alexander hadn't had this in mind when he asked us to write a My Story essay for Language Arts. Maybe I should just make up something a little more PG-rated and get an easy A, something like, I was born into a happy family with 2.5 kids, a white picket fence, and a golden retriever named Billy the Kid, or Henry, or Finn, I don't know. I've always been bad at naming pets. I once had a stuffed bird named Princess Featherfingers. Don't ask me why. I had a stuffed dog named Mr. Age's Sparklehead, too. I was really big on formal titles for my animals, apparently. God, I hate the look of a blank screen. That flashing cursor was definitely judging my lack of a normal family to write about. Lucky? In here, Grandma, I could hear the soft hush of her slippers shuffling toward me before I saw her. Why are you studying in the dining room, she asked, pulling gently on my ponytail, something she had been doing since I was a kid. Because if I study in my room, I'll fall asleep. Fair enough. Can you get your grandfather and tell him dinner will be ready soon? He's not here. He's not. Where is he? He's helping Mr. Tate move a couch or a chair or something. Actually, I think it's a bed. I don't know. I was only half listening when he told you. He didn't tell me he was going out, she frowned. Yes, he did, I said carefully. Remember, Grandma? He told you he had to help move something, and you said he'd better be back for dinner or you eat his dessert. Lemon meringue pie, she finished, his favorite. Right. All right, then. Could you set the table, please? Sure, I can finish this later. I closed my laptop, ready to leave that judgy blank screen behind for a while. Grandma? Mm Mm-hmm. 
She was gathering up my notebooks in a pile and wiping the table under them. Are you okay? She snapped her dish towel at me in response. Hurry up, your grandfather will be back from the store in a minute. He's not at, oh, yeah, okay. I trailed off staring at her back as she headed toward the kitchen, humming something under her breath that sounded oddly like the theme song from Doctor Who. Grandma was still puttering around the kitchen when my grandfather wandered into the house. Dinner ready, he asked, hanging his flannel jacket up in the hall closet. I could eat a horse. I never understood what that meant, I mused. Why would anyone want to eat a horse? Smartass, he leaned down and gave me a kiss on the head. He smelled like aftershave and outdoors and a faint lingering hint of pipe tobacco. Grandma catches you smoking, you can forget about dinner, I told him. Cover for me, I'll go jump in the shower. She thinks she went to the store, I told him. Her memory's getting worse, isn't it? He studied me for a long moment and then smiled gently. She's all right, Lucky. She's just getting old. Are you sure that's all it is? Because she left the water running in the shower again this morning. It was like a rainforest in there. You don't have to worry. Grandma's fine. She's just forgetful, I promise. It happens when you get old. You forget things. Like I forgot she doesn't like me smoking and had a nice pipe and a coffee with Mr. Tate, he winked. Oh, that's hilarious. I'm sure she'll love that one. Why don't we call her in here right now and tell her, I teased. This was our routine. I'd worry and he'd diffuse it with a joke. It usually worked. Don't you dare. Just hold her off for five minutes while I shower. He tousled my hair and dashed from the room. Even at his age, which I was constantly reminding him was too advanced to be up on ladders or carrying furniture, he still moved at a pace faster than most teenagers. I tried to ignore it like I always did, but something about grandma was off and I couldn't help but wonder if maybe she needed to see her doctor. I had said as much to him before, but he always brushed me off. Grandma had been afraid of doctors since she was a kid, and no matter how you prepared her or promised it was just an exam, she was convinced one was going to randomly pop out and jab her with a needle or something. Did I hear your grandfather? Grandma poked her head back into the living room, disheveled from the heat of the stove she had been standing over. Yeah, he'll be down in a second. He just wanted a quick shower. She smiled. Smoking that damn pipe again? You know about that? I asked, flabbergasted. I'm old, not stupid, Lucky. Anyway, he probably needed it after helping Mr. Tate all day. Come grab the pot roast and put it out for me, would you? All I could manage was a weak nod. Sometimes I worried about her until I made myself sick. Then she'd be her usual self again like nothing had happened. My friend Alex said her grandparents were the same, so maybe Grandpa was right, and I was worrying for no reason. Then I thought about the shower that had run for so long that the bathroom was engulfed in a haze so thick I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. Lucky! Right! Coming! I think about it later, I decided, heading into the kitchen to grab the pot roast. Joanne Vanicola might, for many of you, need no introduction, but I'm going to give one anyway, because that's what I'm here for. She is an Emmy Award-winning actor and writer. Sorry, they have been nominated for a Genie, a Gemini, and an Actra Award. Vanicola started and is the chair of Out Actra TO, the new LGBTQ plus committee at Actra, and sits on the Sexual Assault Ad Hoc Committee for Women in Film and Television. The recently released memoir, All We Knew But Couldn't Say, is available online and in stores everywhere, and she is going to read from it very shortly. She's currently co-developing a new series, primarily with women, and working on their second book, a YA novel. Joanne also founded the nonprofit organization Youth Out Loud between 2004 and 2009, raising awareness about child abuse and sexual violence. Equity issues have always been at the forefront of Joanne's work, both in their artistic world and in their personal political life. Vanicola can be found on Twitter and Instagram, and she can be found right here about to read from her new book. Please welcome Joanne. Sorry, I don't care. It, it's okay. It's, it's, uh, the pronoun thing is it's okay. <laughs> Thanks for coming out, those of you who did. <laughs> 
So I don't start in the beginning of my, uh, my memoir. I start in a place where I'm uh, confronting my mother in her hospital bed about my eldest sister, Sadie. What happened when Sadie was a baby? My mother's face drops as she fiddles with her blanket and slowly exhales. I didn't want to marry anyone and I didn't want to have a baby, she whispers. I wait through the silence, allow it, hope it will carry us to a common space where we can hear each other. I sit close to her and wrap my arms around my waist for comfort. What happened after Sadie was born? My mother picks up one of her teddy bears and holds it on her belly as she continues to speak calmly. I told everyone that Sadie died at birth, but I couldn't stand it and I wanted her back, so I picked her up from the foster home. There were six babies in that home, so cute. She speaks in a slow, measured tone. How long was Sadie there? Six months. People thought she was dead for six months, I ask. Yeah, and then I had to explain to my cousins and parents what happened, why I suddenly had a baby. Is that why your father wanted you to marry dad? My mother coughs and reaches for her water glass. I grab the cup and hold it close to her mouth while she drinks from the straw. She clears her throat and continues. Your father and I lived with my parents for three years after we got Sadie back. She looks at me, her eyes glossy, filled with such sadness. I didn't know you told people that Sadie died. Yeah, maybe I should have left her in the foster home. Maybe I should have left. I don't tell her that she did leave, though not before shoving us out the door like a once-loved Christmas tree stripped bare of all the bells and baubles, tinsel and lights, and left on the curb. We were just kids, I say under my breath, more to myself than her. You were so cute, you were a good girl. She looks too closely at me. I want to run now, but I stay. There is a pause. We look at each other, and somehow it's as if she knows what I'm about to say. I need to know, Mom, why. I call her mom, but I don't mean to, it slips out. Why did you do what you did to me? She knows exactly what I mean, even though I don't know how to get the words out. But she doesn't skip a beat. Her face hardens with defensiveness, and that wagging finger flies up into the air, pointing right at me. And before she speaks, I also know what she's going to say, so I close my heart very quickly to avoid the toxic, dismissive response. I never touched you. I shut down, I look away. I know she's not inside herself. I can't reach her. I want to. It's what I've always wanted to do. Understand, make sense of my life. But she will not meet my needs. She will not come clean. Ever. I ask a new question. Why did you let him beat us? I look right at her. This time I'm prepared for her slippery reply. I didn't let him. He was... I should have stopped him. You're right. Not good enough sadist. She set it up most of the time. She must think I can't remember my own history as she tries to rewrite it. Uh, rewrite, uh, yeah, I'll get that word out. As she tries to rewrite, yeah, that word, and wipe the slate. I hear the word in my head again, mom. I don't speak. I tell myself that it's okay as I walk to lift the blinds and let more sunlight into the dark space that has enveloped me. The ocean music is still playing. I, I turn it off. Oh, I liked that, mother says. A man clanks in with the food. The tray of food. Dinner time, he says, then disappears. I walk around my mother's bed to grab the tray, lift the lid to expose her soup in a cup, mashed potatoes, and some type of brown gravy. I can't eat that, she says. The fluorescent light flickers above us, making me feel dizzy. I rub my eyes. The air in the room is dry and I'm tired. Mother changes the subject again. I could go for a slice of pie or a milkshake, she says. My mother used to bake butterscotch pies. One day there were seven pies cooling on the rack in the kitchen and I stole one, ate the whole thing right under the kitchen table. My mother found me and gave me a beating for it. 
I did it all the time, though. Couldn't stop myself from stealing a butterscotch pie, Mother says, looking at me. She stares at my body. I'm aware of it, and I begin to twitch in my seat. I loved eating those pies as, as much as you loved eating air, eating nothing, she finishes, referencing the subject I've been trying to avoid, my life-and-death struggle with anorexia that developed after I moved to Toronto as a teen. I don't want to talk about food or the lack of it, but I'm pulled into it. I ate air because sometimes I had no choice. I know it's not entirely true, but there were days when I couldn't afford to eat, when I stole or I did worse so I could eat. You were sick. That's not what I said. I looked down at my hands. I want to say, stop it, please stop. I want to say I was just a girl when you left me in a new city. I said goodbye to my friends and hometown. I lost everything, but I can't say these things. She won't hear me. She won't give me the very little I look for, some truth, some peace. I just want her to say, I shouldn't have touched you. I shouldn't have left you. I shouldn't have let your dad beat you. I shouldn't have done the things I did. I'm sorry. It's not too much to ask before she dies. I don't think, but she won't do it. If you excavated my mother's heart, you would find the remains of her children. And all I can get out is, I have an audition. It's a lie, but I stand up to look at my watch. I lift the blanket over her midsection to tuck her in. She looks at me quietly, then smiles. Oh, what for? I lie some more. Cartoon, I say as I pick up my backpack. Voice work. Can you put the ocean on before you leave? I push on the button, and the sound of rushing water fills the room once more. Thank you. We are all stumbling over our tongues today so far. Hopefully that will end now. You've written about some very painful experiences. What made you decide to write a memoir about your life? I wanted to write a memoir for a really long time, and it took a long time to actually get to the memoir. It started as a novel, actually, with the Dasper Dialogues program. And then I turned it into a memoir because everyone who read it said it read as a memoir. <laughs> and so I had to make that choice to expose myself. And I just was ready. I thought, you know, I, as an actor, I was so used to pretending and telling other people's stories. And I was always sort of hiding behind this sort of veil, I suppose, of just being an actor in the public and nobody really knowing anything about me. But then I just stopped caring and I wanted my real life to be exposed so that I could use that story, my story, to hopefully, you know, affect other people's lives and, and hopefully make a little bit of a dent. I just stopped caring and I thought I have nothing to hide. So I thought telling the truth was probably the best way for me to tell the story. It's not a story that you hear very often. I mean, you, people don't write necessarily about the difficulty, about abuse, about and it's hard to put yourself out there like that. You, you were saying when we were talking earlier that, uh, that as an actor, you, were, you felt you were sort of hiding. And what made you feel that you could finally tell the story? What did you stop caring about? I think because I've, I've always been an activist. I've always been a feminist. I never really would tell my story, but I would, you know, I would stand up for other people and, and children. And it was a really big part of my life in terms of the nonprofit work I did and that I founded and, and for youth and, you know, feminism and all, all those things. And I wanted to, to feel free, I think. And in order to, to help even more and to hopefully reach more people and have a larger platform, I just... I just stopped caring and I thought it's important to be truthful. It's important to be honest because it's in the telling of these stories, even the rare ones or the difficult ones, that we find out maybe they're not so rare, <laughs> that yeah. there are many other people in the world that might have a similar tale or that want to talk about foster care or child abuse or 
uh, you know, coming out and, and you know, the, the fallout from, from child abuse, things like depression or mental health issues or, you know, addiction, all of those things, those are, many people have these stories and I, I think I just had it all in one. So <laughs> I thought I better write a book before I lose my mind. So it was a good way to heal, I suppose, but also a way to, um, to affect change, I think. Okay. Yeah. Can I interject something? Yeah, yeah. I think that that's a powerful choice, though, because I'm always cognizant of letting every, I write for kids, so every child see themselves reflected in a book, and not everybody has a happy family life and a happy story. So I think that it's really powerful to make that choice to let other people see your vulnerability, but to see you being vulnerable and then see themselves reflected in that and realize they're not alone, and that's really powerful. Yeah, thank Mm -hmm. you. That was, yeah. No, no. What I was going to ask you, Melanie. I mean, with with your writing for for children and and young adults and dealing with intergenerational impact, particularly residential school system, why is it important for young people from all communities to understand this, not just people who have experienced it? I grew up in a time, and, and you guys can probably relate to this. We didn't learn about the residential school system. You know, we took history classes, but they never talked about the dark history of Canada and what actually happened to the First Nations people. And so I think that now we did happen to be in a time where it was being taught at schools. And now, of course, that has been reversed, which I'm not terribly happy about, that it was part of the curriculum. And all of a sudden, kids were being taught that the residential school system existed, and it's an ugly history. I have my own connection to that history with my grandfather being a residential school survivor. But the fact that there is still much to learn, there is still much to be taught. And I think, luckily, we have so many authors who are presenting it in so many different ways and making Mm -hmm. it more accessible for young people. I think it's really important, uh, especially now that it's not being taught again. Suddenly, that curriculum got reversed and it is being pulled out of schools. But teachers can bring in these books. Well, this one actually doesn't deal with that. But bring in these books that do deal with resident. You know, I wrote a picture book that Mm -hmm. deals with intergenerational trauma Mm -hmm. and loss of language. So that is a great way to introduce really small kids to what happened without it traumatizing them. You know what I mean? So there's definitely resources out there. And I think it's super important that we teach our kids so that they can understand the history of Canada, the real history of Canada that we didn't have the privilege of Mm -hmm. learning about. It's interesting too, in sort of the style of writing, because the style of writing in, in Just Lucky There, it's very straightforward and matter of fact. And how much does that sort of presentation in the books really make a difference in getting the message out to kids? I have been accused of writing like a teenager, I guess. You know, like I I write like a teenager would speak, Mm -hmm. which is a great compliment. I spend a lot of time with kids because I've toured all over Canada with my books, which is an amazing privilege. And I enjoy talking to kids far more than I enjoy talking to adults. I'm kind of shy, believe it or not. So it's very uncomfortable for me talking to grown-ups. You do well. Well, I mean, I've... It's, it's a learning process and it's, it's a stressful thing. But I think I write the kind of books that I wanted to read when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And I think that has a lot to do with why my, my books have reached an audience because I never want to talk down to kids. I never want to portray a kid who doesn't have 
some kind of strength because I think kids are really smart and I think they're capable of much more than a lot of grownups give them credit for. So mm-hmm. that's the kind of character I read, particularly girls. It's very important to me. I'm a feminist as well. And it's very important to me to write strong girls who don't need some Prince Charming to come swoop yeah. in and mm-hmm. save the day. I don't believe in writing that. You know, I just want to say too that I read Stolen Stolen Words, the picture book, and it's a beautiful book. It really is. And I mean, I don't read a lot of child books, but the ones yours was just really touching. It's a beautiful book, so people should. But again, she's strong, right? Like she didn't need somebody to save the day, and I don't want a grown up saving the day for a kid. I don't want a romantic partner saving the day for a kid. So I think that's why I write very straightforward. Kids are smart. And I write that way. I write straightforward and I don't pull punches. And I had a big fight with my editor about this book because there's an F-bomb in it and they took it out in the arc. And I said, put it back, you know? Like, do you know any teenagers that don't swear? Because I have two teenagers. They both, so I swear, they swear. swear. Joe swears, I can tell you that already. <laughs> um, you know, like it... it, it Come on. And especially given it's the real. situation. It's real. And that's what you're, you want and to I do. And I addressed make foster care in this. It was mm-hmm. interesting when you were talking about that. So it is real. And I try to write that way, I guess. Mm-hmm. So that was a, I'm not sure I ever answered that's, the question. No, but I, that's, that's good. One thing that's interesting in both of these books is the mothers, neither of whom are particularly good mothers in the way we would usually define that. How do you think that helps girls understand their their own roles when that sort of role model is taken away from them or presented in a different way? Not everybody has a mother that's ideal. Well, for me, in terms of the memoir, it's very complex because also as a feminist, it took a long time to kind of unravel the story or the telling of my mother because my mother wasn't necessarily she was abusive. So it was a very difficult tale to tell because I, I understood misogyny. I understood the patriarchy. I understood that talking about an abusive mom was a complex thing in a culture that's patriarchal and misogynistic. So I tried to find a way to tell my story without it feeling like somehow I was betraying <laughs> women. And yet on the other hand, I think it's really important to tell the truth about the way that we grow up and intergenerational violence. And we can't expect all women to be great mothers when they've also experienced child abuse or some kind of horrible experience. Like they don't just magically become great mothers. And it's that myth of motherhood. And I don't mm-hmm. think it serves anybody to pretend that, that women somehow are just these great mothers because, because they can have babies. And think we have to look at culture, we have to look at racism, societal issues, we have to look at misogyny and all the things that we all sort of have to deal with in, a, in our society and, and really be fair about, about what that is instead of brushing it all aside. So I think it's important to be truthful about, about having mothers who, who are, you know, abusive or are struggling or maybe make really bad choices and to be, to be honest about that. I mean, that's how we affect change, I think. Yeah, exactly. My thoughts were kind of going to a recurring theme in in my particular book because Lucky's mom should never have been a mother. And some people should never be moms. Or parents, generally. No, 100%, yeah. But I think chosen family is a big theme in my book. And I think, I'm sure you probably address something like that. Like Mm -hmm. chosen family is so much more, the older I get, 
and we keep talking about this, that we're getting old, <laughs> but chosen family is so much more important to me now than, than my family's fine, but I mean, we don't see <laughs> eye to eye on a lot of things. Let's put it that way. And uh, I grew up in, in a particular situation that I wouldn't want my kids to be brought up in. So I think mothers, we, we've been brought up. I am a mom, so it's hard for me to talk this way, but mothers, we've been brought up as, as idealizing them, I think. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of cases, kids are always going to love their parents regardless. Would you not say that, Joe? Okay. Well, I mean, but there's, there's a lot of misplaced loyalty to, to parents and family a lot of times. And I think choosing a healthy family, whether it's grandparents or the people you come across, loved ones, is so important and sometimes more important than the family you were born into. Mm-hmm. Joanne, so to give a little bit of the background, your mother, from whom you'd been estranged for 15 years, was given a terminal cancer diagnosis. You fly to be by her bedside and to help her, help her with the, the next stage of her life. You were very kind, I think. That was all despite the cruelty and the abuse and so on she, she'd shown you. Why? Why were you so kind? I don't know. <laughs> I, you know, I think partially I, I was trying to put an end to my own story. And in some way, I, I had in my head that I wanted to be a better person. And it meant, you know, if it meant being better than her in the end, then I would give myself that gift of being a better human. And, and not, I didn't mean that in a competitive way, but I just meant that I didn't want to be angry and I didn't want to watch her die or have her die in anger or bitterness. So I was doing it for myself in a lot of ways. And I feel like it was my gift to me, but also I wanted to see if there is, it was anything she might say to me, which, you know, in the book, there's a number of conversations that happened that are quite intense, but you know, I, I didn't necessarily get what I was looking for, but that in itself was an ending to the relationship. I tried, I gave her space to to say things that would, would hopefully, you know, allow her space to come clean perhaps, or even mm-hmm. apologize, just the stuff that I was reading, but that didn't really come. And so that was her choice, right? That was her, her way to die. Mm-hmm. And I did what I felt in my heart to do to help her die. So I, I'm not sure if that answers that. I, I'm not sure people would have done the same thing or they may have or not, but it was just a choice I, I made. But it was making a choice about the type of daughter that you wanted to be despite the type of mother that she was. Perhaps, but also we, had, we hadn't seen each other since I was quite young. When, mm-hmm. when I left home, I left home. And I hadn't seen her until, until really she was you know, diagnosed with terminal cancer. So I knew it was, there was an end. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. It, it, was, it felt safe enough to reenter that, that space with her because I, I knew it, it probably wouldn't be long. Melanie, you're... Books, several of them have centered around the, the murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. How do you approach fiction whose themes and plot points are reflected in the news in sometimes very sensationalist ways? I think, again, this was an issue that was not being addressed. And it was something mm-hmm. that I was so shocked that people didn't know about and, or dismissed very easily. And I was lucky enough to have a voice, I guess, that I felt I could use to bring attention to issues that weren't being addressed. I chose a really weird way of doing it. You know, like my first book about missing and murdered Indigenous women is a picture book, which seems really weird. And some people thought it was highly inappropriate. 
But I can say that I have, like I said, I've done a lot of traveling and a lot of Indigenous kids have addressed the fact that they've read the book and they have aunts and they have mothers and grandmothers and sisters who are some of the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And to see that story reflected, like I was saying, you know, like it's so important that we have books accessible to everybody where they see themselves reflected. And when nobody wants to talk about this issue and nobody wants to do anything about it, you know, like I was outraged when Stephen Harper said, to be honest, it's not on our radar. It's not something that the government, you know, again, that was one of the recommendations by the TRC. And again, it's not something that has been addressed. And it continues. We've got hundreds and hundreds of women and Excuses keep being made of, oh, well, it's in their own home communities. Oh, it's violence in the home. But many times it is not. Oh, it's women who are putting themselves at risk. But many times it is not. And regardless of, of why, these are women and girls that are being victimized. And I felt so strongly that somebody needed to do something. And for, I'm a writer, you know. So what I felt like I could contribute, what I felt that I could do, was write a book. And I wrote two. I wrote a novel for teens and I wrote a picture book. And it was the way I could be part of it and, and get people to look at something that hadn't been addressed. And it's interesting because mm -hmm. Missing Me Mama, having won like a, a big award, yeah. reached a lot of people. And I'm so grateful for that. It's being used in universities in their writing mm -hmm. classes. And I am so incredibly grateful and humbled that it has reached so many people and that it has made the issue more aware, I guess, where mm -hmm. maybe it wouldn't have been. In Res Runaway, you wrote a character who comes to identify as having two spirits, combining both masculine and feminine identities. How has two-spiritedness been manifest in Indigenous communities and Indigenous art? It's actually, for a long, long time in Indigenous communities, sexuality was, like I'm talking historically, sexuality was viewed much differently. You know, it wasn't gendered so much. It wasn't gay or straight. It, it, the, we didn't have, it was you are who you are. And two-spirited people were considered to be, to have, you know, some kind of mysticism almost. They were seers and they were people that were, were looked up to, which I think is an amazing thing. And of course, now we live in a time where People are not so open-minded and are, are not so willing to see beyond themselves. And I, I think that, you know, I know several Two-Spirit people. I would like to see it being addressed more. Thankfully, Johnny Appleseed came out, which was a beautiful book, which is fantastic. Great author. If you have not read Johnny Appleseed, I highly recommend it. I thought I swore, but oh my God, <laughs> there's a lot of language in that book, which I just thought great, but that addresses much more beautifully than I ever could, you know, two-spiritedness. And I think, thankfully, we're seeing more uh, representation in books for kids, for teens, and for adults. And I think it's so important that it continues to happen. And we realize that life is not so black and white, you know, and nor should it be. Joanne, I think you wanted to. Yeah, leap no, in there a I was just times. going to say that there were a lot of cultures that pre-colonialism, especially here, that colonialism really, really changed everything for two-spirit people. And, and that, I mean, I'm only saying that just because I 
well, I'm a nerd. I studied it, but also <laughs> uh, I, I know you know um, a number of people in my community that talk a lot about it. So, and I think like it's such a big issue right now for everybody culturally in terms of being LGBTQ and what we're experiencing now around gender and gender expression and trans people and intersectional issues. And I think we have to write more and more stories that address you know two spirit LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. issues so that we really sort of expose that as well for, for our youth especially so that they feel that they're reflected in the words and in the culture. And again, you're talking about rolling back the educational curriculum. I mean, that's definitely impacting uh, LGBTQ youth, particularly uh, non-binary and trans youth. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a really difficult time and a lot of, a lot of young people are, are hurting themselves or trying to commit suicide as a result of the lack of representation and support in the culture. So I just, yeah, I just felt like, <laughs> like ah, we have to do something. Well, well, with your activism, you, you have been. Can you talk about that for us a little bit? Like the LGBTQ stuff? Mm-hmm. I think as an actor too, um, you know, there's so few, there are so few spaces and roles and uh, stories about LGBTQ people. Usually it's written through the lens of heterosexual filmmakers and writers and producers. And uh, I just got really tired of it. Even as an actor, I just wanted there to be more for, for, for me, not just as, you know, to, to get employed, but also for the community. And I often have a lot of people contacting me depressed because they can't get any work and they don't know, they can't see reflections of themselves. And I just decided to start this committee in the union for actors because I, I, I want to try and, you know, affect change within the culture, you know, in terms of the industry as well, because that's another way to, to hopefully, you know, affect change. Yeah. The American writer Anne Lamott says the following of uh, the memoir Art Form. She says this, you own everything that happened to you. Tell your stories. If people wanted you to write warmly about them, they should have behaved better. Oh, I love that. Isn't that good? <laughs> yeah, that's what I say about, about some of the people that I've written about. <laughs> I, say, I say pretty much the same thing. They should have been better to me. <laughs> that works in fiction, though, too, because yeah. I have to be honest. If you ever read any of my books and there's like a bad guy, it's probably my ex because I, it's funny because, and I tell kids this and they think it's the greatest thing. Like the book I wrote about the missing, it's, it's a, a thriller, I guess, about missing and murdered indigenous women. I made the bad guy my ex. Like it's so obviously my ex if you read it, like he drives his car and his name is kind of a play. And I made him like a, older, fatter version of them. Like it was, it was really delightful to do, but anytime there is a bad guy, an abusive guy, it is my ex. So it does work and I enjoy it. He doesn't read, so I don't care, but I mean, I enjoy it tremendously. I really get a kick out of, there's like a shirt that says something about I'm an author. If you piss me off, you're going to be in my book. Yeah. There you go. Living proof. Now, Joanne, in, in your book, it's a very deliberate choice of words to say that she chose not to break the cycle of abuse because she was abused herself, your mother was, as opposed to saying she couldn't break the cycle. Are you saying something about the power we have to create our own stories and our own selves, no matter how difficult the journey's been? Absolutely. I think that, you know, there are a lot of us that experience trauma and abuse in our families or in the culture, and we don't necessarily turn around and, you know, beat up a kid or sexually abuse them or, you know, like, I think that happens with a lot of men, but not necessarily because they have been abused, but I think it's just either you're going to do it or you're not. 
and you do make a choice. You do make a choice because you know better. You know, you know what's painful. And unless you're disconnected and you're not attached to your feelings and you're a bit sociopathic or psychopathic or whatever the words are, if you hurt a child, you know you're hurting a child. If you subject a child to physical violence by manipulating a situation whereby they can be assaulted, that's premeditated. So that's a choice and that's, that's thought through. And I think most abuse happens like that. I mean, sometimes it happens in a rage, but that doesn't make it better. And we have to be better and we have to be able to hold ourselves to account. I know as an adult, looking back at young people, I, I'm mortified by the idea that anybody could hurt a child. And so mm-hmm. having been abused, I, I know that I would never abuse a child. It's just not something I would do. So yeah, I think we do have a choice and we do make those choices regardless of how we've been raised. Melanie, Lucky ends up in a foster situation. That isn't ideal, but I think the, the, the novel sort of portrays the challenges of coping with the complexities of foster care, of what is home. My question is, how do we create home? What does home mean? I mean, Lucky has to, has to find that out. Does it lie within us? Does it lie in what's around us, in what we build around us? I think that, yeah, home definitely has to come from yourself. Like she had to find, I'm not going to give anything away, but she did have to come to the realization that family is home. If you lose your home, then it's still possible to regain that semblance of family and that semblance of home, whether it's chosen family. What does home look like for her? Because she's, she's being bounced for a while from foster home to foster home. And it's, I mean, some bad, but, you know, some not so bad, but it's not home. It's not where she comes from. It's not her place of comfort. Mm-hmm. And I think ultimately that that's what Lucky needed. She needed a place where she felt she belonged and she needed a place where she felt comfortable and the people she cares about around her. So I think ultimately for Lucky that her sense of home was belonging to a place again because she bounced around so much that she didn't have, because she knew that one misstep or anything could possibly happen and she'd just be bounced to another home. And that's what happens to a lot of kids in foster care. I wrote this in particular, because there is such an overpopulation of Indigenous kids in foster care. And again, it's another issue that's not talked about a lot, but there's a huge amount of Indigenous kids that are taken from their homes. And I mean, that's what foster care is. But in the case of a lot of Indigenous kids, they're removed from community and it has such a terrible effect on them. I met a kid in, I want to say BC, but that could be wrong. But he came up to me after I did uh, an author visit with his group, and he was like this teenage boy, and he was way bigger than me, but he was like waiting for everybody else to leave. And when it was just us, he kind of shuffled over to me, and he said, have you ever felt like you don't belong? And I went, I never really thought about it, but absolutely. you know. And that's like a whole thing that I won't go into, but yeah, absolutely. And he goes, have you ever felt like you're not connected to your culture? I went, oh my God all the time. Absolutely. 100%. And he just said, because I'm a foster kid and I don't know my community. I don't live there. I don't know my family because I haven't seen them in years. And I feel like I don't belong with the white family I'm living with, but I don't belong with my indigenous family because I'm not there. And he said, I don't belong anywhere. I'm an outsider. 
We hope you enjoyed this program. Please consider subscribing on your favorite podcast provider. If you're an emerging writer interested in receiving our open calls for submissions or invites to our events, please join our DD newsletter by emailing us at info at diasporadialogues.com with subscribe in the subject line. Thanks so much for listening.